Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Good morning. We're continuing in our uh, series in the book of Galatians uh, today, and uh, we're, we're reaching Galatians chapter 5, which I think is like the climax of the book, you know, just like Romans 8 is like the climax of the book of Romans, I think it really hits this peak of where Paul's going with this thing right here, and there's still another chapter uh, to go where he does a lot of application. Um, but as I was thinking about this chapter, I, I, I went back in my mind to when I was, uh, must have been a senior in high school, freshman in college, and I got really interested in the French Revolution, and just learning about that. And I remember reading a book by Jean-Jacques Rousseau called The Social Contract. And uh, it was kind of a political treatise, and it might have had a big impact on the people who, uh, who got the French Revolution going. But the first line of the book, I never forgot that. It says, Rousseau says, man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. He's born free, but everywhere he is in chains. And Rousseau's idea, I think, is that to be fully human, I must be free. I mean, you think about that. We're created in God's image. You know, he's given us this decision-making ability. And to exercise that fully, I've got to be free. But freedom is not the reality we typically live in. And Rousseau's book was kind of a political treatise, and he had this naive view that people are basically good, so we could, always, we could uh, achieve pure freedom uh, through political movements and structures, and I'm sure that he was disabused of that uh, through what happened in the French Revolution. But that's a problem, is this whole idea of freedom and the fact that our souls crave that, but we don't seem to live in it very much. And then there's a second problem, and that was brought up uh, in a, maybe an illustration of it, is in this book that I'm reading right now called Fish Out of Water. It's a memoir by Eric Metaxas. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's, he's an excellent writer. He typically writes biography. So I've read, uh, uh, he wrote a, a biography of Luther. He wrote a biography of Bonhoeffer, or William Wilberforce. He's an outstanding writer, one of the leading intellectuals of our time. And in this memoir, he's going back to when he was a kid, and there were a couple of incidents that really stuck out in his mind that um, caused him even to this day just to feel a great regret. Uh, one was in a fourth grade, and he was in this class, and he was sitting in front of this girl. Her name was Anastasia, and she was, um, you know, he, he liked her, you know, and she was, uh, you know, he, she and he were a couple of the smartest kids in the class. And um, one day, and he, he says, I cannot even figure out why I did this. He said, I turned around, and I said to her, you're fat. And he, he said, I could see it bothered her, so he said, I said it again. And just in a mean way, and she just burst into tears, and the teacher took note of this and took him out in the hall, and she said, what is going on here? And he, he said to the teacher, he goes, well, she was making fun of me for being short, and, uh, which was a total lie. And he says, to this day, I can't figure out why I did that. And he said, I just regret that. Why, why would I do this out of the clear blue? And then he said, that a year later, there was a kid in his class named Terry, and this kid was uh, just a little different, and everybody kind of ostracized him. 
And when he noticed that people were ostracizing this Terry kid, he started like pushing him around and stuff like that. And he said, I still can remember uh, at the bus stop, uh, here's all the girls are over here talking to each other, waiting for the bus, and here's all the boys. And then there's Terry in the middle, he's all by himself, and nobody would be with him. And Metaxas says, that image haunts me and haunts me, but I am glad that it does because I understand now that it should. You know, here's the second problem, and that is there's a selfish mean streak in all of us. I mean, we may want to deny it most of the time, and many, you know, most of the time it doesn't show up, but there are just times where this just, you know, it rears its ugly head, and we're going, where did that come from? You know, and this, uh, this ugliness that's kind of lurking there, this further complicates the quest for freedom. You know, if I'm going to be free, then what about that meanness and rottenness that sometimes just is lurking there? Uh, and so Galatians 5, Paul kind of outlines here, and he's been building up to this, up to this point, the road to true freedom. You know, uh, he starts out right away, and he says, God's goal for us is freedom. It, it starts out in verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I mean, Jesus came to earth, humbled himself, paid that huge price on the cross, the suffering and the dying and rising from the dead, and that was to set us free. But, Paul says, stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And you've heard that all the way through this series, right? It's just like we've got this tendency to drift back to being unfree, to slavery. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons, and one of them is one that Paul's been highlighting so far. And I'm going to call uh, that reason that we drift back to slavery institutionalization. And I'm stealing that term from a movie that I'm going to reference in a minute. But it's just this idea that freedom kind of scares us. Freedom scares us. The movie I'm referencing is The Shawshank Redemption. Have any of you seen that? Okay, it's familiar to a lot of you. And if you've seen this thing, I'm, I'm recalling this here. There's a guy in there that's uh, serving like, a, like what seems to be a life sentence, right? His name is Brooks. And the guy's been in prison for like 50 years. And then they get word that he's going to be released. And in the, in the weeks that build up to him being released, Brooks gets more and more worried. He gets more and more anxious to the point where he's practically dreading this. And then he finally gets out. And if you remember in the film... It doesn't take too long after he gets released from prison. After 50 years, he hangs himself. And the Morgan Freeman character in the movie, and anytime you see a Morgan Freeman movie, he's always the wise man who knows everything, right? And the Morgan Freeman character says something that's kind of profound. And he says, these walls, he's talking about the prison, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. You understand that, don't you? You know, it's like with a pandemic, you know. Think back to when the restrictions first got laid on us. And I remember that when that happened, I just hated them. You know, it's like, Dah! you know. And then we all got used to them, didn't we? We're going like, I got to wear this cursed mask or something, but oh well, you know, and you just kind of slap that sucker on and look at everybody else's like disguised faces. But then enough time passes 
And this happens to people. You get so you depend on them. And there are people today, I read about them in the newspapers. I mean, it's like the thing's basically over, but they're still going like, I'm, I'm not going to go out until I know that everybody's been vaccinated. You know, I'm going like, wow, you know. And they're just like, I need this. There's a sense of comfort here to have people tell you how to live and, and really what to do. That's that institution. And that was what was happening to the, the believers in Galatia. They're going like, yeah, but I don't feel, I feel uneasy unless I've got somebody telling, you know, doing certain things, adding to this uh, thing, you know, give me a certain amount of security. And Paul says this, listen, I, Paul, tell you this, if you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. It was like they're going like, yeah, okay, it's like Jesus says, hey, we're, I've paid the price for you and and, and God is our friend, and, and let's, you know, let's revel in that, let's enjoy that. They're going, yeah, but I'm not sure. Maybe I better get circumcised, and, and that'll make me feel like totally at peace. I've, I've done a few things just to make it sure. I mean, this is going to be good for me. That was their attitude. And Paul says, I'll say it again. If you're trying to win favor or find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. Um, back after World War II ended, uh, General Mills came out with this idea of cake mixes. And they said, you know, what if we could just put together a mix to make it much easier? Up to this time, everybody who was making cakes was making them from scratch. That's a lot of work, right? So they came out with their line of Betty Crocker cake mixes. They did not sell. <clears throat> People just let them alone in the store. So uh, General Mills convened uh, several focus groups and they said, uh, you know, they asked these guys, they go, what, what's the objection? Why aren't people, like, buying our cake mixes? I mean, all you got to do is add water and make a cake, and it's a good cake. And they said, you know what? These were mostly people who were cake bakers already. They said, it's too easy. We feel guilty. And so the geniuses at uh, General Mills went back, and they reconfigured what they were doing, and then they said, we got Betty Crocker cake mixes. All you have to do is add water and eggs. And as soon as they did that, the things flew off the shelves. And isn't, there, isn't that the truth about us? There's something in us that wants to kind of earn what we get, right? We want to merit it. We want to go like, yeah, I, I really believe all this right stuff, you know, and that's going to make God happier, you know? Or I'm doing these things. I'll follow these rules and regulations. I'll do the circumcision thing, and then I'll, I'll observe the food laws and, and do some of these holy days and everything. And that, yeah, I feel better now kind of thing. Rely, but here's the problem. Relying on my own religious efforts takes me out of the realm of trust and makes me wonder if I've done enough. That's why Paul says, you start doing this, you're going to have to start doing the whole thing because you're going to feel like, well, that was good, but was that, was that enough? I, I thought of this, uh, of baptism and this connection right here. You know, uh, my mother-in-law is an outstanding person, but when our kids were born, uh, and then we would eventually decide to have them baptized, um, we typically would schedule a baptism for these little kids uh, when we could get the whole family together from out of town. And maybe you did stuff like this too. And my, this would make my, my mother-in-law really uneasy. She'd be kind of worried. And finally, when the baptism would come and a little child was, was baptized, she'd go, now, don't you feel better, kid? 
And I think her attitude was like, if that child, God forbid, would die before he was baptized, you know, and then here's this child, and the Lord's going to go like, oh, I'm sorry. You kind of blew it there. Yeah, I wish I get, you better get out of here. You know, and it was like, what's up with that? You know, what kind of conception of God is that? But, you know, if you know the history of the Christian church, there's been hundreds and hundreds of years where people have fought and bickered about baptism, about like, you know, so they go like, well, you know, when you were baptized, you were sprinkled, but you really need to be immersed, you know, or vice versa. And I remember uh, one of my daughters married a, a guy who was in a different Christian denomination, and, and they said to my daughter, they're going like, you know, we can't uh, marry you in this church here because uh, you weren't baptized in that church. You were baptized in a Lutheran church, so you'll have to get baptized in our church first to, to make it happen. And the whole thing, you know, you can see this whole idea of like, well, we got to do this, we got to do that. And then, you know, it's out of the realm of faith and it's into, have I done enough to win God's favor? And Paul's going, hey, it's already won. You know, then he, he goes on and he says in verse 4, for if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you've been cut off from Christ. You've fallen away from God's grace. That's a harsh statement. He's going like, you're, you're missing the whole grace thing. It's not even happening for you anymore. Uh, relying on my own religious eff- efforts takes me again out of the realm of trust and brings me back to depending on my own strength. And you and I know that our strength just can't get it done. We're just too weak to make it happen for ourselves. This was brought home to me this year uh, in, as an educator. You know, this has been a terrible year uh, for education in America. So many kids never had a chance to be in school at all. According to the Plain Dealer, 25% of Cleveland students never even attended one day of school this year. And that's either online or in person. 25%. And it's just, it's horrific wherever you go. I mean, it was like a lot of kids never got in-person education and they had this online kind of education. And I want to tell you as an educator, that's a joke. You know, virtual education is very, very meager kind of education. It just doesn't get it done. And that, you can see that everywhere that you go. Uh, Tyler back there in the sound booth is a teacher at Lutheran East, and he told me about a month ago, he says, you know, there's been two pandemics this year. Two pandemics. He said there was a medical pandemic, but he said there was an educational pandemic. And he said, when we look back on this year, we're going to realize the educational pandemic was much more serious. You know, it's just done a terrible thing. Now, here's a deal that we discovered is that there has been much, much more cheating going on uh, in terms of education than ever before because when you're online, it's very difficult to have that kind of accountability. If you look at the screen on the left, you see one of the many sites that sprung up. This is homeworkforyou.com. It's a very popular uh, website. And in this website, what you do is you just post the amount of, uh, you know, the assignment that you had. Maybe it was an essay. Uh, maybe it was some, uh, you know, a test or something like that. Maybe it's a whole month of work. And then a whole bunch of people will enable you to cheat. They'll bid on that and tell you how much it's going to cost. Um, do you know that, that sites like this 
Some of these sites have had 350 million hits a month during the pandemic. The guy on the right there is a uh, statistics instructor at North Carolina State, and he said that uh, he's had literally caught hundreds of his students cheating on exams, you know, through this whole thing. And when he confronts them and goes like, well, I'm gonna have to give you a zero on that, they go like, how can you do that? We're in a pandemic. It's terrible, you know? But what's happened? You know, I wanna tell you, education is a trust-based uh, thing. And so I, as a teacher, I, I need my students to trust the process. So I, they come into my classroom and I say, look, if you just engage in what we're doing right here and you take notes and you, you study and you do the work that I'm assigning to you, you are going to learn. But you've got to trust this process. And when people step out of the realm of trust and they start going, well, I'm just going to manipulate this and try to make it happen with my own efforts, it doesn't get done. You know what the most craziest thing about this whole homeworkforyou.com? There's a lot of these sites that have ripped off students and they've taken money, sometimes as much as $1,000, and, and given them shoddy material uh, in return. And some of these students have actually gone to the Better Business Bureau and said, hey, I've been cheated uh, by this. I'm going, that takes chutzpah, you know what I'm saying? But you get the idea here. It's just like our own efforts just don't get it done, and they just degenerate. Paul says this in verse 5, but we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised to us. For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there's no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. Faith in Jesus is the only way to real transformation, the only way to deal with that nastiness that lies sometimes below the surface and the fact that we need to be free, but we're not getting free. There's another way that we end up getting enslaved, and that's that it's our desire for autonomy, that we look for freedom in the wrong places. Uh, Paul says this in, in the second, as he introduces the second half of the chapter. He says, For you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. There's this tendency, you know, sometimes just to go like, well, I'm going to try my own good efforts. But then there's this other tendency on our part to go like, I want to run my own life. That's real freedom. No restrictions. I saw this in a Babylon Bee. It says, libertarians to begin wearing masks now that government says they don't have to. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of libertarian in me, and it's like when they said you had to wear a mask, well, no, I, don't tell me what I got to wear on my face. You know, and I'm going like, get out of my life. A true libertarian, I suppose, now that they're going, you don't need a mask, they go, yeah, but you can't tell me not to have a mask, right? But there's that little, like, boss that's a little Caesar that's in us all the time going, I want my way. Now, here's the tragic part of the whole thing. My natural desire to run my own life always ends up frustrating me. And I think this is the classic example. I remember reading this, like, research study, and it was done about little kids, uh, little bit more than little, but they were like eight and nine-year-olds who had deep depression. So these were kids who were really, even at that tender young age, they were very depressed. So they looked at these guys and they go like, what is it that they have in common? Is there some common denominator here that's bringing them to this depression? You know what they found? 
I mean, you would assume they go, oh, these kids are all terribly abused. That wasn't it. The thing that they had in common for the most part was they had never been disciplined. Their parents had let them do whatever they wanted to do. Total freedom, no restrictions. Isn't that interesting? But it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. I, I think I can explain it to you in this way. This is a picture of one of my colleagues right here, uh, Jacob O'Hara. Uh, he's typically here with his family at the 9 o'clock service around the town this weekend. Um, but uh, last Tuesday, we had our last school meetings, and then we went over to Jake's house, uh, uh, all of us teachers, and we had a picnic there to celebrate, you know, 180 days of in-person education for the year. And before we ate, Jake prayed, and somebody snapped a picture of it. And if you look at the left on that picture, um, that's his daughter, Gloria, right? And she's, I don't know, about six years old, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And there's his son, um, Abel. And you can see they're praying there. And I, I look at the picture of Gloria there, and I go like, this is kind of typical of kids, isn't it? I mean, at that age, you know, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, they want to please. They, they want to do the right thing. There's an earnestness about them that's so endearing. You know, and you see they're able to, same kind of thing. Dad's praying, I, wanna, I think that's the right thing, I want to pray too. Well, here's the problem. You know, if you're a little kid, you want to do the right thing, but you're weak. And if you'd spend some time with Gloria and Abel, I'll bet you you'd find out there are times where they're not bowing their heads reverently in prayer, right? All of you who are parents, you know this. Your kids wanted to do the right things uh, so much, but they just kind of, yeah, they were weak. So if you get into a situation where you've got nobody restricting you and nobody, like, putting down the rules, it's so important for parents to have, to discipline their kids and to put, you know, parameters and everything. Kids are much more comfortable when that happens. But if, if you're in a situation where you're a kid, where you're le- allowed to just run free, you end up doing a lot of bad stuff. And then you get frustrated. Remember when you were, when you were kids and you were in school and you had a teacher who could not keep order in the class? Remember what that was like? The first few days, it was a lot of fun, right? Do anything you want to do. Just, you know, raise a ruckus. But then after a while, it got frustrating. You didn't feel good about yourself going, well, we're not accomplishing anything. And when I look back at school, I remember teachers that, you know, knew what they were doing. They could keep order. They were teaching. And I go like, yeah, I got stuff done there. I felt good about myself. And this is what happens to us. And it isn't just kids as adults. You know, there's something we go like, yeah, there's stuff I ought to do. But if we're just like going to, you know, follow our own selfish desires, we get frustrated. I call this the cupcake addiction. I'm not addicted to cupcakes. You know, talk to me about cheeseburgers or, or pizza, yeah. But he, I talked to a, a wife of one of my colleagues at that picnic. She's a nutrition counselor for Cleveland Clinic. And she's, people call her up and they go like, yeah, I, I need to lose weight. What am I going to do? You know, how, what should I eat? She said, it's not an information problem. She said, there's underlying issues always. And she said, you know, the typical thing is the person goes, yeah, I'm feeling depressed, I'm down, I'm not happy, I'll have a cupcake. I have that cupcake, I go like, wow, that tasted good, I feel good, you know. And if I had another 12 of them, I'd feel 12 times better, you know. And so it's just like, and you just keep, you, you want to keep feeding that feel-good feeling that food gives you, 
It does, doesn't it? But you just keep, but then afterwards you feel rotten. I I hate myself. Why did I do that? You know, and she said, until we deal with that underlying issue, what are we going to do? You know, and Paul uh, says, hey, don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love for the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. And ultimately what happens is it begins to destroy the relationships around us. And we just start that selfish nature, that sin nature begins to take its toll on us and the relationships and the people around us. Uh, I was reading something by Rob Long. He writes uh, scripts for television shows, does series and movies and stuff. And he said one of the things that Hollywood screenwriters love to do the most is hate watching. You ever hear that? Hate watching. He said what they like to do is get together and watch a show or a movie put out by a competitor and then make fun of it and ridicule it, make snarky comments about it. He says there's nothing professional writers love more than acting unprofessionally. You know, and it's, it's this idea that, you know, if we're just imp- run by our own selfish desires, we start competing with people and we start resenting them and we start taking it out on them. And that's why Paul says here, when you follow verse 19, the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living like that, that sort of life, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the lifestyle of people either living by their own desires or just trying to make it on their own without God's help. And these things just emerge. And he talks about you won't inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where Jesus rules. And where Jesus rules in our marriages, in our workplace, and in situations, and he, when he rules in our lives, there's blessing, and there's protection. And there's that abundance that God is going like, Dad, that's what I want for your life. But you miss out on that, living for yourself. Living institutionally, you know, by the law or living autonomously by my selfish desires takes me out of the blessing and protection of God's kingdom. So where am I going to go? And Paul concludes the chapter by talking about the road to true freedom. And he says, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. When I follow Jesus, his spirit enables me to fight successfully against destructive desires and not go back to being institutionalized. It's all a matter of like just trusting my life to Jesus, and then he starts to really make it happen, to walk in that freedom and that freedom to say no to those things that I know are going to tear me apart. These are famous verses here, verses 22 and 23, talking about how God is going to produce that good stuff in me. 
But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. When I became a believer, when I finally trusted Jesus with my life, I must have been about 30 years old, but all of a sudden, these things just started happening in my life. It wasn't like I, I went, oh, i got to love more, or I need to be more joyful. It was just like it emerged. It was like it just popped out and started happening. And I think, Doug, you remembered that, didn't you? It was like all of a sudden these things were, I didn't even know they were happening. It's like people were going like, hey, you're different. I didn't realize that. But people at school noticed that. They're going like, hey, I, I could use some of that myself. It, but it wasn't, any, it wasn't effort on my part at that point. It was just like God was doing something great. It's like fruit popping out on a tree. So when I follow Jesus, his spirit enables me to be what I've always deep down wanted to be, but was too weak to accomplish. You know, it was like I, you know, I started realizing, hey, I've always wanted to be nice to people. I mean, I was deceived into thinking, yeah, I wanted to cut them up, you know? I, I want to pray, but I, I always thought I didn't. And it was just like I'd been deceived. It was like something was happening there. And it's like that's the power of the Spirit in our lives. When we moved out to Westlake years and years ago, it was kind of an undeveloped area. There were no sewers in our part of Westlake even. And, but we had, we had a smaller house, which we still live in, and a big yard. And in the big yard, there were like five or six apple trees uh, in the backyard. They were like Jonathan apples, which are the best. And I remembered like the first spring, I go out in the backyard. I mean, I was a city boy, right? I didn't really understand this. And these trees were all like white, like the blossoms. I went, wow, look at that. It was like I didn't do anything. It just happened. I didn't press a button or cultivate. And then... Then all of a sudden, it was like apples appeared. It was like, wow, it's free. It's great, you know? It was, that's the way the fruit of the Spirit works. Now, what I didn't realize was that if you just sit there and wait for it to happen, the next year happens, the, next, the apples get worse and worse. You've got to actually take care of fruit trees. I didn't know that. And so they eventually deteriorated. We ended up using the trees as bases for... Um, wiffle ball and stuff, and now they're all gone. <laughs> I blew it. But Paul is saying this as he closes the chapter. He goes, those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let's follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let's not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another, he's saying. I got a responsibility now. God's producing the fruit. I need to just fight the good fight along with the Spirit there against all the stuff that comes against what God wants to do in my life. I got to take up the fight against the blight. So when I follow Jesus, His Spirit makes good fruit grow in my life. But res my responsibility is to resist sin's attempt to take over and fight that thing. I just wanted to, uh, um, you know, this could mean throwing the cupcakes away. It, it could mean, you know, just taking your phone and putting it in a different room when you're trying to pray so you don't get distracted. This might mean cutting off a friendship that's causing you to go down in directions that are going to take you away from the way you really want to be in Christ. 
whatever the price that has to be paid, it's worth it to keep that, the, the fruit flourishing on the tree that God is producing. I wanted to just finish up with this. You know what you're looking at right here? This is a picture of an excavation of a Greek temple in Galatia. You know, this, is, this has been done in the 20th century. They actually dug this thing up. And when the people in Galatia actually read um, these verses uh, the, from the letter to Paul, where he talked about liberty and freedom, it rang a bell with them that had to do with, with a temple. See, it's like almost everybody in Greek society had a slave or two. They were like servants in their homes. Sometimes they owed money, whatever it was. And slaves, if they could work enough and get enough money uh, somewhere, they could buy their way out of uh, slavery. But very few could do that. It just was too expensive. But many times, owners would go like, you know what? This guy needs to be set free. So they would go to the temple. This was a, a kind of a legal thing they did. They went to the temple, and they paid a fee, and then the slave belonged to the god at that temple. And once that slave belonged to God, he could no longer be enslaved by people anymore. Is that not a good picture of what's happened in your life and in my life? You know, a price was paid, a big price that Jesus paid. And we who are slaves, slaves to sin or slaves to the law, we became the property of God. And I belong to God you belong to him. We're his precious possession, right? That's what it says. And now that we belong to God, we can no longer be enslaved by men. You know, it's like nobody has a claim on us anymore. And Paul is saying to you and me this morning, he's saying, live in that freedom. Relish that freedom. Don't go back to trying to earn it yourself. Just and don't go back to trying to run your own life in all those ugly ways that just brought you down and depressed you and made you hate yourself. But he's saying, just let God do his work. Let that, that fruit just grow there that God wants to bring out and revel in it and enjoy it. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we didn't even know what, what we uh, wanted to be with our lives, and you have made something good where before it just wasn't there. And we can't thank you enough, uh, Lord, for what you're doing. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning or who's listening to this or watching this who um, is right now just trying to run their own life and just getting frustrated with it, it's bringing them down, or if they're just trying to somehow earn their way into your favor, Lord, we just pray that they would trust you this morning. Just lay their lives before you and receive what you've got. And Lord, we want to say thank you so much uh, for what you have done for us, what you are doing, and what you're going to be doing in the future as this good fruit emerges. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.